Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this your word. Open our hearts, open our minds to hear it and receive it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may we uh, take your word, receive it with joy, and share it with one another. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we ask this. Amen. So Paul is using a clothing metaphor in this passage. He tells us that we are to put on, uh, like clothing, uh, compassion, humility, forgiveness, and love above all others. He says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, and then in Romans chapter 13, he kind of summarizes it in the expression, clothe yourselves in Christ. So do this for a minute. What I'd like you to do is try to think back to a time when you didn't know how to get dressed. For some of us, our memories do not extend that far. But early on in life, We don't know how to get dressed by ourselves, obviously. It's a a real parental milestone when Johnny or Sally comes downstairs out of the bedroom one morning and says, you know, mommy, mommy, uh, I did it all by myself. Uh, I dressed myself today. And to be sure, there are errors the first time this happens. Socks are mismatched, shirts are on backwards, um, colors clash, but as a parent, you're You're just thrilled that they did it. They did it. Hey, they did it. Well, now what I want you to do is fast forward in your thinking to your days in college. Um, And just assume for this analogy that you are living on campus and the registration gods have, have been unfavorable to you. And so you are registered and have to take an 830 class in the morning. So if you're, if you're one of those students and, and you've got to get up, students, for an 8.30, uh, what, time, what time is it that you wake up and get yourself dressed at for an 8.30 class? Like around 8.28. <laughs> and somehow you, while you're still asleep, dress yourself and uh, very quickly speed walk in your sleep still across campus in order to be in your desk for Dr. Wood's 8.30 pop quiz that he's going to give you. There's a huge gap, isn't there, between I can't do this on my own to I can do this automatically. And somewhere in this metaphor is Paul's 
vision of the Christian life. So today, uh, it's the third of three sermons, and, and these three sermons, normally my sermons don't connect all that well, I think, from week to week, which is probably a problem with my preaching. But this, th- this is the third of three sermons, and each one of these are necessarily building on the other. And so two weeks ago, I preached on our identity in Christ, and our identity in Christ is, is really the key. I said, it is the fuselage of the airplane. It is... Everything has to flow out of our identity, and everything I'm going to say today is predicated on living out of our identity of Christ, uh, in Christ. Then last week, I talked about the mortification of sin, uh, and John Owens, how he said, you need to be putting sin to death, or sin will be killing you. So mortification is one of the wings of the airplane. And then today, we're going to talk about, in the theolog- theological terms, vivification, or, or putting on, putting on life, and how... That's the other key component um, to, 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 to the Christian life. And dressing ourselves in these, in these, really Paul describes it in verse 14 as virtues. These are virtues that he's speaking about. What I'd like to do is use some of the material from a Christian philosophy professor at Calvin College, James K.A. Smith, this morning, to begin and talk about virtues uh, and what they are, how we attain them, how they fit into Paul's vision for the Christian life, and then conclude with some specific reflections on the virtues of forgiveness and meekness and love. Virtue. Virtue is a moral category that's largely been lost in America today. You rarely hear people speak about virtue in the classroom, in education circles. Neither is it spoken about in politics or in political discourse What are virtues? What are they? Virtues are simply, at least for our definition, they are simply good moral habits. Interestingly, that word habit comes from the Latin habitus, and it refers not so much to a person's repeated actions that go over and over again as it did to a person's internal disposition that produced those repeated actions. So a moral habit would then be an internal disposition towards the good or towards what God calls uh, good. Another way that we would refer to a moral habit would be an internal disposition would be a character trait. Something that is so woven into your being that it creates a tendency, a disposition toward doing it Doing, doing it over and over again. Doing, actually, doing what you are. So doing compassion or doing humility or doing gentleness because, because it's woven into the very person that you are. How then do virtues differ from laws? If my definition is right and that virtues are internal dispositions towards the good, then laws would be external stipulations of the good. And there's actually an inverse relationship between the two. Anybody who's ever raised children is familiar with this. When your kids are young, you have many external stipulations of the good, don't you? You know, there are many external do this, don't do that when they're young because the good hasn't been fully internalized inside of them. But as they grow older, successful parenting 
uh, looks like this. It stipulates less and less. You don't need to stipulate as much because these, ideally, these moral habits are being internalized more and more. They are being woven into the child's character. And so we could say that the more virtuous a person is, the less you have to stipulate by law. Does that make sense? It becomes second nature to you. So then, when we talk about a fully mature man or woman in Jesus Christ, a fully mature Christian is somebody who is doing these virtues as though, as though they were second nature, um, without even thinking about it. Yes, uh, you know, you can give a Christian, a mature Christian law, and, and they will obey law, but they're really not thinking in terms of law. It's flowing, it's just flowing out of them as what, what they are. Now, when somebody's immature, they need lots of rules. They need training wheels on the bicycle. But as we mature and as we practice these things, it becomes more and more second nature to us. So look at verse 12 then. Let's read this and try to make a connection. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, therefore, clothe yourselves with these virtues. On Wednesday of this past week, we Americans celebrated an H-O-L-I-D-A-Y. If you take the I in the middle of that word and you switch it to Y, then you have learned the words etymology. The word holiday comes from simply the word holy day. Who said secular people don't do holy days? <laughs> In America, we have a half a dozen of these every year. These are special days that are different from all other days. These are set-apart days. And as a result, we do special things on these special days. Wednesday was a set-apart day, a day for us to set apart, to wear strange costumes and go to parties and watch scary movies, although not, nobody in my family would dare to watch one with me this year. So it was a very disappointing Halloween. Uh, and it's set apart to threaten our neighbors with mischief if they don't give us chocolate bars. It's a special it is a holy day, a day different from all the others. And what does God say to you in verse 12? He says that you are holy. You are special. You are different. The first readers of Colossians would immediately think about their baptism and their faith in the Lord Jesus. You were set apart. Set apart to do what? Set apart to do new things with your life. Set apart to do virtuous things with your life, different than everybody else in this world. What is so fantastic about this is that before God ever tells you to go be holy, he says, you are holy. Before he ever tells you to go do love, he says, you are loved. You are my beloved. The Father says, you are, you are loved. I have great affection and devotion for you. You are sacred and you are special to me. You may have been neglected and ignored because there were more important people that needed to have uh, the attention in your family of origin. You, have, you may have rarely heard those words, that I love you. But now that you are in Christ, you are my holy and saved child. Um, another word for that is a saint. So then what is the connection between verse 12 
and the virtues which follow. Here's how I would put it. Because you are loved, because you are forgiven, because you are holy, that makes it possible for you to acquire these moral habits and virtues of loving, forgiving, and being humble. Um, you know, I've been in Christian circles that stress virtue. And they're like virtue, 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 all, all over and over again. But they disconnect virtue from identity. And if you, if you tell a kid, if you tell a person, give me virtue, but it's not flowing out of um, identity, then it's nothing more than, than moralism. And it crushes the spirit. Likewise, I've been in Christian circles that say, you don't need to put any effort in to acquire virtue. We're just supposed to kind of let the Holy Spirit do it for us on autopilot. Let go and let God. And that's not true either. You know, virtue really doesn't come into our lives without blood, sweat, and tears. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens first when we have a really strong sense of our identity. And then secondly, how do we acquire virtue? Really, the, question, the discussion about how we acquire virtue goes all the way back to the Greeks and Aristotle. Aristotle would say, uh, at a minimum, there are two things one must do to acquire virtue. One is to simply practice. You do it over and over and over again until it starts to become natural for you. And the second is that, that word, imitation. You know, by following the example of virtuous people, by learning from them and being taught by them and following them. And so it's this constant interplay of practice and imitation, imitation and practice. That's actually the insight and wisdom that drives something like Alcoholics Anonymous. Like anybody who knows anything about AA or NA knows that at the heart of it is a wisdom which says, you're not going to become the person that you need to be simply by knowledge. You know you're not supposed to drink anymore. Well, voila, that doesn't get you very far, does it? I know I need to stop drinking. Information is not simply going to do it. You have to be immersed in rhythms and rituals and practices and routines that actually start to help you practice becoming this new virtuous individual. Um, something that Presbyterians really ought to hear. It, it takes more than knowledge to acquire Christ-like habits. It really does take a whole new set of rhythms, rituals, practices, and people, and people who will, who will teach you and, and allow you to learn by imitation. I'm amazed. Uh, for example, uh, uh, we've got a spouse right here who is a terrible communicator. What do you think, what's gonna, how is that guy going to magically become a good communicator five years from now if, he, if he's not instructed, if he's not trained, if he doesn't have somebody imitating what, what healthy, loving communication actually looks like? What do you need to do? You need to have somebody train you in that and help you practice that. Likewise, if you have a person over here who is the non-emotional, non-feeling type, well, how are you going to do compassion? Because compassion requires us, doesn't it, to feel something of the pain of another person, and then we act in tender-hearted you know, mercy towards them. Well, how are you going to learn to do it if nobody shows you and teaches you how to feel? 
And so rhythms, rituals, practices, people, I think that's what Paul is getting at in verses 16 and 17 in this passage. Let's, shall we read it together aloud if you're still with me? All right, verses 16 and 17. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It seems like he starts to describe church being the church, (laughs) Um, exhorting one another, admonishing one another, worshiping together, singing together, sharing in thankfulness, doing practices in the name of Jesus. I think it clearly implies that within the life of the church, the rhythms, rituals, practices, the worship, the personal life on life, you're in my life, I'm in your life, that is how we get trained in, ad- in developing, you know, Christ-like uh, virtues. So let's talk about three of these, and then we'll be done. Forgiveness, compassion, and love. Forgiveness, compassion, and love. I suspect that for many of the Colossian Christians who are reading this, hearing this read to them for the first time, the statement that would have hit them the hardest is in verse 13 there. At the end of verse 13, where Paul says, Forgive as Christ forgave you. It's like, oh my, that's a statement. Forgive as Christ forgave you. How has Christ forgiven us? He's, he's cast your sins behind his back. He has buried your sins in the deepest sea. He has trampled your sins under his feet. He has separated you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. He has removed them and he has remembered them no more. And I am to forgive as Christ forgave me. There's, I mean, there's like no way I can do that if I haven't really dug the well very deeply into my forgiven identity in Christ, right? Like, I can't go and do that without understanding that I am forgiven. I want to forgive. I want to forgive like this. What does it mean to forgive? Here are two things that forgiveness is and three that it is not. Number one, forgiveness is canceling a moral debt. Uh, The Bible often speaks metaphorically about forgiveness using financial terms and and couches it in in the phrases of it's a debt or an obligation such that if you owe me money and I forgive that debt, it means, ergo, you don't have to pay that debt. I pay that debt. I absorb that loss. If you owe me $1,000 and I say it's all good, then that means, you know, I'm in the hole. And so canceling a debt, a moral debt, you know, always involves a personal loss to you. Number two, forgiveness is also, is not only canceling a moral debt, but it is not It is foregoing your right to try the case. It is releasing the case to a higher court. Instead of me rehearsing the merits of the case over and over again and rehearsing your 
you know, guilt in the case, I decide that I'm going to step off of the, um, step out from, from behind the bench and hand the gavel to the Lord Jesus. And I will say, Jesus, you try the case because I'm going to get off the bench. Isn't it interesting? Forgiveness is such a huge part of the Christian life. But it, let me ask you this. How many times in a Christian relationship have you, have you really gotten into a conversation with a Christian friend where you were able to unpack for them how difficult it is for you to forgive in a given situation and, and that they have been able to imitate or you've been able to learn by imitation of how they have forgiven, imitation and practice. Like how often does that happen in our Christian friendships and relationships? And by my experience, very, very infrequently. Like how often... How often do we talk about train me in meekness, train me in gentleness? Like, although those things are really important, we never do that in our relationships. Yeah, we might easily say that about the rest of the virtues. Um, compassion. What is going to train me in compassion? Uh, who's going to train me in compassion to feel your pain? Um, what do you need? What, what can I do for you? And I was kind of lost in my sermon. <laughs> no, it's right there. In verses 12 and 13, skipping ahead, Paul says each of these are really under the umbrella of love. Each of these is bound together in love. Uh, love binds them into a single, virtuous, godly, Christ-like life. You know, the Bible is never sentimental about this love that Christians are called to. It's very realistic. It tells us that love is pain, love is heartbreak, love is sacrifice. At least true love, Christ-like love, must be so in a world of sin and death. You know this, maybe you uh, remember this, the, the great part of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, where he speaks about the pain of love. Uh, he, says, he says, true Christian love, um, he says, man, I'm having a hard time today. <laughs> to love at all is to be vulnerable. If you love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and likely broken. If you want to make sure that you can keep your heart intact, then you must give your heart to no one or to nothing, not even to an animal, because our pets die. He says the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and disappointments of love is hell. And here's what God made the rule of life in this world to be, that the one who loves the most will suffer the most. This is a world where everyone is a sinner, and so everyone disappoints the others in this life. But according to 1 Corinthians 13, true Christian love, it cannot fail and it cannot give up. It cannot retire from the scene. It cannot, it must be faithful as Christ's love was faithful to us. It must surmount and endure the sins of others as his love did and does for us. As one author puts it, you might even be thinking at this moment as a form of self-defense that, yeah, I love many in my life, 
but I don't have to love that person because of what she, he or she has done to me. No, Paul says, that person and only that person is the true index of your love. Your love is most Christ-like when you love the one who has disappointed you most cruelly and betrayed you most inexcusably and failed you most painfully. Only that kind of love is Christ's sort of love. In conclusion, every day we wake up in the morning and the darkness has given away, given itself over to light. Every day we take off our pajamas and we put on our clothes. We make a transition between the night and the day, between what was to what is. And God's vision, his vision for the Christian life, his moral vision for us is that we would do this like a college student, (laughs) not like a a four-year-old. Imagine that kind of, of you that just forgives like second nature, just that puts on the clothing of humility and meekness like I just do this at 8.28 in the morning. I do it so easily. Imagine what that's like to do it with humility. That's what we should be aspiring to. And where I am deficient in these virtues, I need you to help me put, put my clothes on. I need to be trained by imitation and practice. I need you to speak the word of Christ to me richly, as it says here. And to help me ponder what I've learned of God and of Christ, of his cross and his resurrection, of his second coming and of heaven itself. And help me ponder who I am in Christ and let my heart be so full of that reality and, uh, and, and train me in these things. Mark, Mark Twain, he had this, you know, so quotable, but he had this funny little quote where he said, Uh, speaking of the power of words, he says, the difference between a word that is almost right and is right is the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. And we need our brothers and sisters to come and speak that, that right word for us and to us. I think that's very much what it means to live in, in real Christian relationship. And, um, I pray that God would give it to us in this church. Amen.